have to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. Roger. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is a new and strange environment at first. This suddenly finding yourself in orbit. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. I'm going to step off the land now. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome home, Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful. Discovery, go at throttle up. Discovery, right or throttle up. Nose gear touchdown. Having fired the imagination of a generation, a ship like no other, its place in history secured, the space shuttle pulls into port for the last time. Its voyage at an end. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to Episode 8 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Redstone. By the late 1940s, it became obvious that Army ballistic missile research activities required more room than what was available at Fort Bliss, Texas. After a long and thorough search, the decision was made to move to the Redstone Arsenal at Huntsville, Alabama. Huntsville was a small southern farm town known for watercress, cotton, and mosquitoes. The Redstone Arsenal was chosen for several reasons. First, it was on a tract of land owned by the government. Second, its location on the Tennessee River gave it access to the electrical power of the Tennessee Valley Authority. Third, the climate was good. And fourth, it was not too far from Cape Canaveral, whose long-range proving ground was growing in importance. The Secretary of the Army approved the transfer to Huntsville in October of 1949, and the relocation was completed between April and November of 1950. The move included the entire Von Braun design team, which consisted of 130 scientists, about 500 military personnel, 120 civil servants, and several hundred employees of General Electric. The Redstone organization was designated the Ordnance Guidance Missile Center and was headed by Major James P. Hamill, who had worked in association with Von Braun since the activities at Fort Bliss commenced following World War II. The Redstone Arsenal itself was commanded by Brigadier General Thomas Vinson. Not long after the outbreak of the Korean War in June of 1950, the Army design team at Redstone Arsenal was given the responsibility of designing a ballistic missile capable of achieving a range of 500 miles. The missile they developed was first called Ursa, then Major, and finally Redstone, in honor of the Redstone Arsenal. As the Korean War grew more intense, the Redstone's priorities increased. In the interest of time, it was decided not to develop a new engine for the Redstone. Instead, it would be fitted with a Navajo engine developed for the Air Force by North American Aviation. As development continued, the Army's desired range was reduced 
from 500 to 200 miles. With the decrease in distance, the Redstone would be able to carry a nuclear warhead and be capable of being launched under battlefield conditions by combat troops. The years between 1952 and 1954, during which the Redstone was developed, were perhaps the most critical years of the U.S. missile program. During this time, the basis for every missile now in the U.S. armory was established. But the most crucial development during this time was not of a technical nature. It was the realization that the Soviet Union was threatening a breakthrough in weaponry that endangered the very existence of the United States. The Soviets had exploded an atomic bomb in 1949 and a hydrogen bomb in 1953. U.S. intelligence produced evidence that the Soviets were working very hard on a ballistic missile and were ahead of the U.S. The Redstone became the first large liquid-fueled rocket developed in the U.S. using German V-2 technology. It was 69 feet tall, its diameter was 70 inches, and it weighed 61,300 pounds. Its maximum speed was Mach 5.5, which means 5.5 times the speed of sound. The first Redstone was fired from Cape Canaveral in August of 1953. 36 more were launched through 1958, 16 built by the Redstone Arsenal and 16 built by Chrysler Corporation. Redstone-based rockets would eventually assume the duty of carrying the first U.S. satellite. And now, the sequence of events leading up to the first satellite launch. In November of 1953, during a speech at the World Peace Council in Vienna, Dr. Nesmayov of the Soviet Union's Academy of Sciences stated that the creation of an artificial Earth satellite was a very real possibility. In May of 1954, a Navy Viking research rocket fired from White Sands Proving Grounds successfully launched an 852-pound scientific payload to an altitude of 158 miles. This established an altitude record for the Viking research rocket, along with demonstrating that the Navy could place scientific payloads into space. You may remember from Episode 7, the Navy's Viking rocket was previously named Neptune, and it was based mostly on the V-2. In June of 1954, Frederick C. Durant III, President of the International Aeronautical Federation, requested that the Office of Naval Research set up a meeting to investigate the possibility that the Army and Navy might cooperate in launching a satellite. Two days later, the meeting was held with a joint Army-Navy team, including military, government, technology, and educational representatives at the Washington Office of the Office of Naval Research. Werner von Braun presented a detailed Army proposal for launching satellites using the existing Redstone missiles mated to upper-stage clusters of Loki rockets. The Loki rocket was an unguided anti-aircraft rocket based on the German Typhoon body. Like the Typhoon, Loki never saw service in its original role, but later found widespread use as a sounding rocket. 
It was so successful in this role that several advanced versions were developed based on the Loki layout, including the final Super Loki. Loki was developed at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL. In August of 1954, a follow-up meeting was held at the Redstone Arsenal. Von Braun prepared a paper for the group entitled The Minimum Satellite Vehicle Based Upon Components Available from the Missile Development of the Army Ordnance Corps. Von Braun's paper was based on using existing rocket equipment. As a result, the Office of Naval Research was authorized to immediately begin scientific studies on launching a satellite. The effort was named Project Orbiter. In November of 1954, the Army submitted detailed plans for a rocket to be employed as the carrier vehicle for Project Orbiter satellites. The launch vehicle would employ a modified Redstone missile as first stage, a cluster of 24 or 32 Loki rockets as second stage, and a cluster of six Loki rockets as third stage, and a single Loki rocket attached to the satellite payload as a fourth stage. The plans were submitted to the Office of Naval Research and JPL for analysis. In December of 1954, the Project Orbiter team prepared a detailed production and launch schedule for their first series of satellites. The schedule included an initial series of four scientific satellites, the first of which was forecasted to be launched in September of 1956. In January of 55, Radio Moscow reported that the Soviet Union was in the process of developing satellites for launch in the, quote, not-too-distant future, end quote. In March of 55, President Eisenhower approved the idea of launching scientific satellites, Selection of a suitable satellite program was assigned to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Research and Development, Donald Quarles. In April of 55, JPL completed its review of the launch vehicle proposed for Project Orbiter. JPL recommended that Loki rockets be replaced by a new smaller version of the Sargent rocket, called the Baby Sargent. To make up the upper stages, the Redstone Base first stage concept was endorsed by JPL. Also in April, the Soviet Academy of Sciences announced that it had established a short-term goal of launching instrumented weather satellites sometime over the next two years. In July of 1955, Assistant Secretary of Defense Donald Quarles received three separate proposals for the launching of the first U.S. satellite. The Army's Project Orbiter, based on a Redstone, the Navy's, based on the Viking Research Rocket, and the Air Force's, based on the Atlas missile that had yet to be flown. Quarles decided to form an advisory group to settle the issue, this eight-member committee was made up of two Quarles selectee, two Army selectees, two Navy selectees, and two Air Force selectees. Homer J. Stewart of JPL was appointed head of what became known as the Stewart Committee. Also in July, President Eisenhower 
in association with the National Academy of Sciences and the National Science Foundation, announced that the U.S. would launch small, unmanned, Earth-circling satellites as part of the U.S. contribution to the International Geophysical Year. The International Geophysical Year was an international scientific project that lasted from July 1, 1957 to December 31, 1958. It marked the end, after Joseph Stalin's death, of a long period during the Cold War when scientific interchange between East and West was seriously interrupted. The very next day, the Soviet Union announced a commitment to launch satellites during the International Geophysical Year. In August of 55, Leonid Setoff of the Soviet Academy of Sciences stated that the Soviet satellites were being designed in different sizes for different purposes and were much larger than the satellites being developed in the U.S. Also in August, the Stewart Committee selected the Naval Research Laboratory Viking-based plan to launch the first U.S. satellite. The vote was 5-2, to two, with one member absent. Stewart himself voted in favor of Project Orbiter which was the Army-based project. Proponents of the Navy plan claimed that the program would not interfere with ongoing ballistic missile research. They also cited the fact that the Viking research rocket had already proven its worth as a scientific carrier vehicle. Navy proponents believed the Air Force plan would not guarantee the launching of a satellite prior to the end of the International Geophysical Year, and also relied on the Atlas missile, which to date had never flown. Project Orbiter was rejected, primarily because the program was considered to offer a poor tracking system and inferior scientific value. In addition, Project Orbiter employed Redstone and Sargent military rockets, violating the desire of President Eisenhower that U.S. scientific satellite research be distanced from the military. Scientific management of the Navy program was subsequently assigned to the National Academy of Sciences with funding through the National Science Foundation. The Navy was assigned the role of developing the Viking-based carrier vehicle. Believe it or not, the Navy and civilian managers were forbidden from soliciting scientific data from the existing military ballistic missile programs. Immediately following the decision, the Army demanded a second hearing to prove that Project Orbiter could be revised to address weaknesses perceived by the majority of the Stewart Committee. The Army issued a memorandum critical of the Navy's satellite program, citing its low probability for success and an overly lengthy time frame to develop a launch vehicle. Of course, the Navy quickly rebutted this memorandum. In September of 1955, the Army, Navy, and Air Force were formally notified that the Stewart Committee had approved the Navy's satellite program, and they named the project Vanguard. The very promising Project Orbiter was killed and the Army was forbidden from any attempt at launching satellites. In other words, even if the Army had the capacity to launch a satellite, it was not allowed to do so. Not long afterward, Homer Stewart reportedly told Von Braun, 
quote, We have pulled a great boner, end quote. And I would like to add that history would prove that assessment to be correct. Also in September of 55, a committee headed by James R. Killian, Jr., advisor on science and technology to the president, recommended that the Army and Navy cooperate in the development of the Jupiter Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile to be deployed by the Army on land and the Navy at sea. Just days after the death of Project Orbiter, the Army was given a chance to develop their four-stage version of the Redstone. Unfortunately, not to launch satellites, but to support Jupiter Nose Cone High-Speed Reentry Test. The name of the rocket evolved into the Jupiter C, and that stood for the Jupiter Composite Reentry Test Vehicle. The first Jupiter C was expected to be launched by September of 1956. In February of 1956, the Army side of the Jupiter Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile Development Program was established as the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, the ABMA. It was under the command of Major General John B. Medeiros, and it was based at the Redstone Arsenal. The ABMA inherited Werner von Braun and his scientific team and the ballistic missile projects already underway at Huntsville, including the Redstone missile. In September, the ABMA launched the first Jupiter-C from Cape Canaveral Launch Pad 5. On its first launch, the Jupiter-C achieved an altitude of 682 miles and a distance of 3,350 miles, setting a new Cape Canaveral altitude and range record. By directive, the Jupiter-C carried a dummy payload, and the fourth-stage motor was filled with sand instead of solid fuel. This was to prevent the accidental launching of a satellite prior to the officially sanctioned Project Vanguard. This launch could have put a satellite in orbit over a year before the Soviet launch of Sputnik. To make matters worse, in November, Secretary of Defense Charles E. Wilson issued a Roles and Missions Memorandum that stripped the Army of all missiles with a range of over 200 miles. This meant that the Redstone would be retained by the Army but the Jupiter would be transferred to the Air Force with the ABMA acting as a contract supplier only. In December, as expected, the Navy pulled out of the Jupiter Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile Program. The advent of small, high-yield nuclear warheads had made long-range solid-fueled missiles feasible, thus alleviating Navy fears that the liquid-fueled Jupiter would be too hazardous to handle at sea. In April of 1957, with Jupiter-C performance data in hand, the ABMA officials prepared and presented a follow-up to the Project Orbiter calling for the launching of six instrumented satellites aboard Jupiter-C rockets. According to the ABMA, the first of these satellites could be launched as early as September 1957. Of course, the proposal was rejected.
In June, the Soviet rocketry expert Nezmayov announced that both a carrier vehicle and a satellite were being readied for launch. He did not specify an exact launch date, only that the launch would occur within a few months, and no details about the carrier vehicle or satellite were revealed. In August of 57, a Jupiter-C rocket carrying a one-third scale version of a Jupiter missile nose cone was launched from Cape Canaveral launch pad number 6. Although the nose cone failed to separate from the spent third stage as planned, it did break through during re-entry. The nose cone achieved a maximum altitude of 300 miles and was successfully recovered 1,160 miles downrange. This was the first recovery of an object that had flown in space. It also proved that ablative-type nose cones could survive the intense heat of re-entry. Also in August of 57, Major General J.B. Medeiros, head of the ABMA, ordered that remaining Jupiter-C components be placed in protective storage. Just three of the planned 12 Jupiter-C rockets had been launched. This was a move aimed directly at providing an as-yet-unauthorized Army backup to the Project Vanguard. Medeiros also ordered that the two Jupiter-C rockets in the most advanced state of readiness be maintained in case a satellite launch was approved. The rockets would be maintained so that the first could be launched not more than four months after the authorization to launch a satellite was given. The second could be launched about a month later. Army officials also allowed Medeiros to consign and store the necessary Baby Sergeant upper stage rockets as part of a long-term life test, which sought to determine the useful life of these solid-fuel rocket motors. The ABMA backup plan to launch satellites with Jupiter-C components if the Navy's Vanguard project failed was kept a secret for the time being. Later in August, the Soviet news agency TASS reported that a super-long-range intercontinental multi-stage missile had been successfully launched. In September, Radio Moscow reported that the Soviet Union was ready to launch a satellite. No launch date was specified, only that the launch would be soon. And on October 1st, the Soviet Union released the frequencies to be transmitted from a Soviet satellite whose launch was described as imminent. In closing, my thoughts turn to Werner von Braun. Despite his work on the Redstone, the 12 years from 1945 to 1957 were probably some of the most frustrating for him. The U.S. government was not very interested in his work or his views and only embarked on a very modest rocket-building program. Further frustration came in a knowledge that his redstone-based Jupiter-C could have launched the first artificial satellite over a year ahead of the Soviets. Meanwhile, his counterpart in the Soviet Union, Sergei Korolev, was allowed to go full speed ahead with several new rocket designs and the Sputnik program. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button 
or the Patreon link. Thanks.